We all want to believe in something, but how far will we go to find meaning? From the executive producer of Friday Night Lights, whose new original drama series The Path takes audiences inside the mysterious world of a controversial cult-like movement, starring Aaron Paul, Michelle Monaghan, and Hugh Dancy, and hailed by The Hollywood Reporter as impressive and riveting, The Path takes an in-depth look at the gravitational pull of belief and what it means to choose between the life we live and the life we want. The Path, now streaming new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large out in Los Angeles, and believe it or not, the big season that we spend a good portion of the year talking about, we thought it was over, but now it's started again. Your Oscar predictions article, and it has it has begun today uh, as a real thing on IndieWire that people can read, which means that we are really in the 2017 awards season, even if some people want to resist it, with Cannes coming up, Sundance already happened, and studios are revving their engines with some serious campaigns. So this is a real thing, even if <laughs> you're completely off base about everything in six months because i won't be <laughs> holy no holy one no. step one step at a time here there's some there's some real stuff to think about here you, you've you've made some some bold gambles but also some safe bets so let's well, dig this into is the it time of year where it's possible to sort of throw out possibilities you know based on films that you've seen too i mean i i'm a big fan of of the birth of a nation which i saw at um sundance and witnessed the first screening at the echoes with the two standing ovations and and you know stood through the screening because i was couldn't get a seat you know in the packed house and i had to see it um, somehow we all kind of knew that this might be an important movie, and I think it is legitimately, and that's why Fox Searchlight was willing to to spend so much money on on buying it. Well, it is legitimately, yeah, it is legitimately a movie of the moment that people that hits all the right buttons in that respect. I mean, whether or not it's a critic's favorite, it's not, and whether or not you know Fox Searchlight even wanted to take the can is actually kind of an interesting question because it's not a movie that everybody's going to love, but it hits certain buttons that make it I don't it think they stuff. tried to take it to Cannes. And my understanding, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that they would have been taking a risk. They would, they would be coming out. They could risk coming out behind by taking it to Cannes. They're better off the way they are. Well, it to the fall festival. and so far, and so far, as, as far as movies that scratch the diversity itch go, this does seem like, the movie that has that going for it. I don't see a lot else on the well, release there's calendar. Fences. There's the Denzel Washington, Viola Davis, uh, movie version of the August Wilson revival that won the Tony and that I actually saw on Broadway. So I can tell you they're really, they're both really good in it. So he's going to direct a movie version that Paramount's supposedly going to bring out before the end of the year. And then the other one that's going to be in Cannes, as we just said, some of these movies are launched at Cannes is, is the Jeff Nichols, um, loving with Joel Edgerton, um, and Ruth Nega playing uh, an interracial couple. Right. Well, that one, there's certainly a lot of intrigue surrounding it. It's in the Cannes competition, which you can infer all kinds of different things from. He's been there before, but he's also at the right moment where this could be a big pivot point. Midnight Special was well-received, but it wasn't wasn't a huge movie for him. It was a studio movie, but it wasn't a huge movie. It was a small, it would have been perceived as a bigger success as an indie release. 
perhaps than as a studio release. Right. It was but, sort of a, a you know not on not on a not a big scale movie for for a studio. But Loving is not a big scale movie. Either. I mean, it's a it's a focused release. It's just that it looks like a very intimate. Uh, well-acted two-hander of sorts with the, you know, it's got the period element going for it. and it, it's, it's got a lot of potential in that respect, but it's not... It feels like an Oscar movie. That's yeah. my... You know, you, you, it's almost an eye-blink thing, like a Malcolm Gladwell moment where you just <laughs> look at a movie and you can s- sort of feel whether it's an Oscar. And sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you have to wait and see the movie, but the more, you know photographs and materials I see from that movie, it feels like it's a possibility. Yeah, not to mention the fact that it's got our favorite award season consultant, Cynthia Swartz, working on it, so never I've spoken to her. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's a lot of great great people. She will help. Yeah. That's, that's but, uh, but it sends a message. I, the, the, I, do, I mean, clearly, Birth of a Nation is the master narrative of sorts around uh, diversity, but it, it's interesting to look at these other kinds of possibilities. I mean, the Denzel Washington film... You know, is he a great director? The Great Debaters was was fine. He made Antoine Fisher. You know, but yeah, he's he. There's there's potential there, but uh, Birth of a Nation we know for certain is in the conversation. But the only other movie that you've put in the front runners category, I think we should hash that out a little bit because it's a romantic comedy uh, called Maggie's Plan, which we've talked about before. It's a, a very charming little film. Uh, I can't kind help of... but think that you're dismissing it as a charming little film because it's a romantic comedy. Well, I... It's a romantic comedy basically because you have Julianne Moore, Greta Gerwig, and Ethan Hawke in a romantic triangle. But they're playing academics. They're really smart. It's incredibly witty and well-written and well-directed. It's the fifth movie of a woman director, Rebecca Miller, and I can't help but wonder if people are going to dismiss it for that reason, too. Well, I speak for, I guess, the, the assumptions people make about the awards race when I say that. I like the movie just fine in, you know, it, it sort of, it would be disingenuous to completely dismiss it on the basis of genre and the context of the awards conversation, because one of the great New York romantic comedies of all time is Annie Hall, which won Best Picture, but I do think Maggie's plan is not on that level. I mean, it's it's fine. I enjoyed it. If you it quite were to look bit. at, I don't know when was the last time you looked at Annie Hall. And Annie Hall is one of the great movies. I love it. Um, but this is very much in the same ballpark, I think, and and very much set in New York, very much of a Valentine with smart, witty people. And you could call Annie Hall a romantic comedy, and it wasn't dismissed out of hand because it was that genre. So I would like to think that Maggie's plan is going to be well-received and, and will do well. So far, so good on, um, on the uh, critics' aggregate. Sites, it's well up there in the in the high seventies. So I mean, to me, it seems like the kind of thing well. where it's it's it, it needs to be a hit for one thing. Yeah, if, if it, it doesn't, does... I loved Mistress America last year, and that didn't get very far. But um, maybe there are limited appetites for Greta Gerwig. I don't know. And it could be. I mean, Maggie's Planet is a little bit has a little bit more going on, and uh, I think in some ways it's. It's a, it's a little more exciting in the way that Noah Baumbach's movies are not. I mean, there's a more narrow kind of audience for those sort of things. But, uh, but there's the got other, Sony Pictures Classics behind yeah, it, there's and a, they know what to do. Point. But the other thing about it that, that I think is, is worth uh, singling out is that it's 
it's fun in a way that a lot of people will be responsive to, irrespective of whether or not it's their kind of movie. It's, it's not a you know chick flick, really, in the most obvious sense. It's got broader appeal than that. So uh, to me, it seems like if this movie does well, it should be an obvious contender for screenplay or maybe a performance, depending on how that field shakes down. But in in the in the best picture category, I feel like this is a this is a nice kind of bold choice that you've thrown in there early on for people to start thinking about. It's really going to be a screenplay contender in all likelihood. Um, um, Both Sofia Coppola and Jane Campion were nominated for Best Picture and Director in their respective years for Lost in Translation and The Piano, but they both won screenplay, which is typical of what happens with women and the Oscars. <laughs> but you also have a longer list of, of contenders and long shots, and I think those are worth looking at even more uh, intently than uh, the, uh, the the front runners of sorts because they're, they're unknown quantities with certain kind of elements that suggest they could really go for it, like Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which is that inevitable Oscar movie that everybody has the hardest time remembering until it becomes a frontrunner. That's a, I mean, I'm surprised that you know, there's that many words in there. It doesn't register as the most commercial know, it's, title. It's, it's adapted from a book. That's why they did that. So, so that's the Ang Lee movie, and you, there was some footage that was previewed at, at CinemaCon. It's got 3D, it's got 4D, it's got all kinds of different frame rates going on. And uh, Ang Lee, obviously, won Best Director for Life of Pi. So it seems like this one is sort of a slam dunk, but... I don't know. I mean, I guess with without having seen it, it's hard to really assess whether or not it works, right? Right. No, the word out of NAB was pretty wowed, but again, again, that's a that's a, already a kind of a tech audience um, that's responding at that point. Um, I'm excited. I mean, Life of Pi, he definitely delivered on. So um, I was never a fan of The Hobbit. I I hated the way that looked. It looked like high-def video to me. But apparently he uses this um, in the context of the state of mind of the protagonist who's going through a kind of PTSD uh, post-Iraq war kind of thing and, and uh, is, is in the middle of this, um, you know, hectic hero's welcome. So maybe that works, you know, as a, as a, as a way of expressing his, his, his interior state of mind. So another one that uh, stands out on this list is Silence, which is a Scorsese movie that people thought might be ready for Cannes. Obviously it's not. And uh, that's this film he's been working on for, I two years or something like that since uh, Wolf of Wall Street. With, I know, he's uh, been shooting in Taiwan. with, And uh, the word on that is that he's tinkering, as he always does. Um, and also, uh, they didn't show anything at CinemaCon from that. So, it, it, you know, do, do we know that it's going to be done by the end of the year? No, we don't. Scorsese can really go either way with these things. I mean, he right. got his Oscar, and he's friggin' Martin Scorsese. He doesn't need to necessarily nail these things away. That the we are happy to wait for the master. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. It's he's a different like kind of conversation. He's like Malik, you know. Yeah. I mean, they, but he he's commanding big budgets at big studios. So eventually, 
Brad Gray will say, hey, Marty, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Just get the damn thing done already. We're but, paying interest costs here. <laughs> so, you know, the hilarious thing about this list is that Scorsese is one of, one of the younger guys. I mean, you have, as another sort of question mark, the new Woody Allen movie, Cafe Society. He just turned 80. You have... Uh, opening night at Cannes. Opening night at Cannes, a good start. And obviously, Amazon's going to be pushing and that. Period, and that's a big budget, relatively expensive, $30 million period film for him. And then you have Sully from Clint Eastwood, another fall title for Warner Brothers. And he, you know, this is a guy who just seems unstoppable. I mean, even after his crazy chair incident at the RNC, he came back with American Sniper. So... Here, here he is with this Tom Hanks movie based on the the guy who landed the plane in the Hudson, which sounds like such an obvious crowd pleaser, unless it's just so maudlin that nobody can stand it. So, well, I don't know. Tom Hanks is a major movie star, and 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 it seems like a natural uh, for Clint. Um, the thing that I noticed is that there are all these sort of the, I won't call them biopics exactly. What they are are movies based on real events. So. There's Peter Berg has two movies. Um, Patriots Day is the one that's maybe going to be done by the end of the year. Where with Mark, they're both with Mark Wahlberg. They're both for Lionsgate, and it's it's the same thing he did. What was the name of that other Mark Wahlberg war picture that he did um, like a year ago? Uh, set in Afghanistan and and very intense warfare. Whatever that was. Oh, Lone, Fri- Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor. Yeah. Thank you. So these are sort of in the same mold. Jingoistic. The other one he's uh, doing is Deepwater Horizon. So yeah. Patriots Day is the marathon bombing in Boston. Right, but they're still shooting that. There was a piece in the Times the other day about scenes from the set. So we'll see. That's supposedly going to be done by. Uh, that's like Fences, which hasn't even. Yeah, I don't see how they finish these in time. Right. But, you know, right. it's April. I suppose they have some months to play with but uh but then there's snowden from oliver stone which i didn't even put on the list because i don't know how how good that is i i left off a lot of stuff that i have i just haven't seen enough about them and yet and yet we have our pal warren Beatty on there with his untitled howard hughes Hughes movie that he's been working on forever yeah, that so. was that's because it's Warren, you know, it's Warren Beatty. I mean, he was in uh, CinemaCon uh, introducing Arnon Milchan, who financed the movie. So I guess he owes him <laughs> that courtesy. But Bert, basically, the purpose of his going to CinemaCon was to say, "Yeah, I finished the movie, and it's coming out in the fall." <laughs> so they're they're obviously going for it. Well, something that that I think is worth singling out about all these different things is that. You have a bottom line rule with all this stuff, which is that no movie gets front runner status until you see it. And yet, here we have all these different kinds of possibilities that are there for logical reasons. And so, well, people- I look, I do that eyeblink thing. I basically look and see, you know, what is the subject? Who is in it? Who is directing it? How much is the studio behind it? Um, you know, and then and then there's other there are other projects that could be more acting oriented or or you know you just have to see them you have to see how they're how people respond to them before you can even take them seriously. But the the point is it is not premature to be talking about these things even though there are some people who may say oh God not again as we drill into this list as we've been doing now for 15 minutes I mean one of the things that's that it's really clear is that. 
these movies have some status in the award race that has nothing to do right now with whether or not they're even that good. That it's it's certain it's it's almost like Mad Libs. You plug in Woody Allen plus big distributor plus can opening night and it's like, yeah, I guess it's part of the conversation for now. But after we see a bunch of stuff at can, we're gonna revisit this list and Of course. It's gonna change radically. We're gonna revisit yeah. it a lot. Because so. hope springs eternal. And uh, we have no way of knowing if this is good Woody Allen or not so good yeah. Woody Allen. And that, it goes both ways. Yeah, exactly, so to speak. But there are other Oscar developments that are going on right now outside of what's actually in the race, as, as it were, including some major changes to the Academy rules. And, and you've been tracking that pretty closely. So where do you see kind of the, the state of the Academy right now in terms of how, how things have been shaken up recently? What happened is that that, that all these different, um, you know, tempests uh, over uh, diversity, mostly Oscars so white and so forth, you know, caused the Academy to very hastily and very responsively uh, come back with these rule changes that they had been discussing for a long time. This was in January before the Oscars happened. And they were so fast on the trigger that they didn't quite realize how upset a lot of the Academy members were going to be. And what they were doing, in effect, was sort of making a lot of people who maybe are, are retired or maybe they haven't worked in a while, or you know, question whether they were actually going to be allowed to continue to, to vote. And um, they put hundreds of people, if not, you know, many hundreds, into uh, disarray. Now, they were trying to call the ranks. They were trying to get rid of some of the obvious people who really don't belong there, who haven't been active for a long, long time or were only briefly active ever. Or maybe they shouldn't have even been invited in the first place. Um, that some of the people on the the roles of the academy are made, you know, are astonishing. I mean, the one I always come up with is Dolores Hart, the nun who who starred in Where the Boys Are in, in the '60s. You know, and the, the, it, you know, should Dor Dolores Hart be be eligible to to vote? You know, but anyway, so now they've revised them, and they they're basically saying, oh, we really didn't come up with these rules to, in order to address diversity as much as we did to address relevance. And that made me you know, question the whole, you know, how relevant is, is the Academy? How relevant is the Golden Globes, you know, who made, you know, The Martian uh, a comedy, which was the subject of a lot of uh, jokes and, and mockery uh, on Golden Globes night. And, um, so they've changed their rules, too, so that uh, they have the ability to override the studio's submissions of various categories if, if they want to. And, and uh, they, they want a, a drama will be a drama and not uh, a comedy. I kind of um, liked that, though. I liked that. First of all, I widened the field a little bit so that some other, you know, the Martians still got in and actually won an award. But, but also, I mean, this notion of fixed genre categories is sort of, deceptive anyway so 
I felt like that backlash was sort of uh, miscalculated on, on some level. It's just sort of, there are more important things that people should be concerned about than whether or not. Well, that's a question of whether you take the Golden Globes seriously. Yeah. At all. Well, that's yeah. the other thing. I mean, who cares? Just let them, let them have their ridiculous categories. They're giving but you. They're trying. They're trying to get, <laughs> they're trying to go straight. Obviously they, 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 Oh my God, you know, they shouldn't have members who, um, worked on a given movie voting on it and i'm like they could vote on it before if they worked on a movie as a consultant or something right there's so many ways that they try to wine and dine and and cajole and bribe you know the golden globes year long that the fact that they're going to say oh you can't go to any parties during the nomination process is sort of silly you know but getting they go to parties all year long well, they'll just do what they do, whatever. I think the Academy situation is more pressing because the, the Hollywood Foreign Press is what it is. The Academy is constantly trying to reflect some kind of ideal that is incredibly hard for them to do without being more sort of open about how they bring people into into the their club, as it were. And so... This question of diversity, which has been coming up in from every possible angle just in the last few months, which is crazy that it's all you know kind of concentrated right now, but it it does seem like that's something that requires checking in on every every few weeks to see how it's going because you know it's it's still not clear i mean it doesn't look like there's going to be a ton of movies uh jockeying for nominations this year that will rectify some of these issues, but the membership is something that at least could shift much faster. Well, they've been inviting, they've been doing this for a few years now, inviting different people to be members and going very young and going very much for, for diversity. Uh, one of the people they invited in the past few years was Prince, sadly, you know. I'm so sad about that today, just so sad. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the the uh, yeah, they're working on it. They're working hard, and they changed the rules for how you could be a governor too, so that they can try to to make it more diverse. The the board of governors, which is the group that actually runs the show. Well, let's uh, stick with Prince for a second. It's actually an interesting example. I mean, Prince won an Oscar. Should, why why is it that when you win an Oscar, you are not by default an Academy member? They tend to invite you right afterwards. They tend to put you on the list if you're nominated even, you know. And I find it fascinating that someone like John Landau, who was the producer of Titanic and and Avatar, it took took years for him to become a member. Um, So it's it's a, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't, uh, de rigueur, but but they, they tend to, to, to do that. Right. It, it's just, it seems like there are a few refinements they could do that would really rectify this kind of challenge in, in a way that would make it less of a headache every year for them to be scrutinized for, for diversity issues because plenty of well, diverse they're going, people... they're going full board. They have yeah. been for, for, for quite a few. Ever since Don Hudson came on, they've been pushing hard, you know, on this front and changing the, the diversity uh, quotient of, of the people they're inviting so, um, to the point where, you know, if you're if you're an older white male, it's harder to get in. 
Wah, wah. <laughs> I don't feel too bad for older white men when it comes to these things. But uh, this isn't the only diversity issue that's come up recently. In fact, just this past week, there's been some really fascinating conversations going on about some casting decisions with Tilda Swinton surfacing in the trailer for Doctor Strange as this Asian character and Scarlett Johansson being cast in a live-action adaptation of Ghost in the Shell, a very well-known Asian property. And... Then and Patricia Arquette saying this thing at the Tribeca Film Festival where she was basically acknowledging that after her speech at the, at the Oscars when, when she won uh, Best Supporting Actress, she was punished, that there were roles that she didn't get. So this seems like perhaps the biggest challenge that the industry has to deal with is just that there's it seems like there's some disconnect in terms of how the conversation is, is widening and what kinds of casting decisions are being made. And then there was a story in the rap uh, this week about about how two two studios have no women directors f- until you know between now and two thousand and eighteen listed on any of their schedules and and uh, and then there's Karen Kasama who came out very notably with 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 her new movie talking about how hard the road was for her to to get from girl fight at Sundance like 19 years ago to directing a movie that she actually had some kind of control over and the only way it got uh, it got it got made was was by a, a funding organization that exists for the sh- for the only for only funding movies directed by women that's the only way her movie got made was that you know and and, and that's that's crazy uh, as far as um, as the uh, question of Scarlett Johansson and Tilda Swinton, that's a, a t- a, it speaks to the whole question of what is is bankable. You know, how do these movies get made? They get made by individual territories around the world deciding that they're willing to put up a certain amount of money to get uh, distribution rights. Uh, based on the stars in in the movie, and that's that's how all these movies, many of them as you see, are are, are patched uh, together, and and that's how big their budget is. And and someone like Scarlett Johansson is an is one of the few women who's actually a movie star who can get a movie made on that basis all over the world, and. You know, because of Lucy, because of the Marvel movies, um, where she gets to actually kick ass as an action star. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many women who can do that. That's why you can you can see why someone like Jessica Chastain, who has such a good high profile, or Emily Blunt, you know, they're 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 actually making a movie that looks on paper like it's going to be bad. You know, The Huntsman, Winter's War. And, and which already had Charlie Theron in it. Um, a, they're doing it for a paycheck. B, they're doing it to prove that they can that they can do action scenes. You know, that's what Jessica Chastain is proving. Because each time you do that, it, it enhances your value uh, as a star, being able to get a movie like that and get paid more, like a guy would get paid. And so Tilda Swinton has a name all over the world. And and so how does you know, Rinko Kikuchi get to star in, in Ghost in the Shell. Well, she doesn't speak English, Rinko Kikuchi, very well, at least not well enough to carry a movie in English. 
right. as a movie star. And she's an art house star in Japan. She's not a big popular movie star. It's in interesting, Japan. though, to, to mention Huntsman Winner's War, which you said looks on paper like it's not very good. Okay, so we haven't seen it, but most people I've are seen, saying, I've oh, seen, you have, all right, yeah. so let's talk about it. It's not very good, right? It's terrible. So let's let's come out and just and just address that for a second. I mean, it's it's a message being sent just that you know women stop movie stars can carry a bad movie too. I mean, is that exactly where this conversation needs to be? Well, because Chris Hemsworth is is the Huntsman, so he's the title. He's the he's the titular movie star. Yeah, so. Isn't it interesting that our instinct is to blame the women for the fact that it's not going to open when he is actually the movie star also? Mm. <laughs> no one's going to blame him for the opening being bad. Right, it's, because it's he's still Thor. Instinct. At the end he, of the day, he gets to be Thor. Well, so Scarlett Johansson is, is still Black Spider, you know? I mean, Good so, point. So, Why is so, that not being acknowledged? I mean, sure, but she, has, she needs a standalone movie or something to... I mean, who, Scarlett Johansson? Yeah. She Where? did it. She did it with Lucy. No, I, well, so Lucy, that's an interesting example. That's sort of, I, I, I really enjoyed Lucy. I thought it was crazy, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, that was but a, it was more a big a, box office movie all over the world. It that did was very considered well. considered to be, you know, an action, action movie. She, she needs a standalone Marvel movie. Yes. No question. The yes. fact that she hasn't had one, why not? Of all of the people, of all the people in in the the Marvel universe, you know, Phase One, Phase Two, the introduction of the the superheroes, she didn't get one. Right. Yeah. Wonder no, Woman's going to come before her on yeah. the DC side, which I can't say I'm exactly excited about. I am. I, I am. Well, I think it looks great. But but anyway, she's so so the the Tilda Swinton question again. You know, in that case, that's a supporting actor. You know. You could imagine that they could have cast that with, 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 with an Asian, for sure. So the question is, if you don't cast them in the first place in the smaller roles, right. how do they become big enough to carry big movies? But, uh, but you know, language is a, is a factor. In I'm all just getting this, this weird uh, kind of deja vu from that blowback that Matt Damon got in Project Greenlight when he, he said to... Uh, Effie Brown, that if you want, if you're going for diversity, you do it in the casting, not in the filmmaker, and just how how much. Oh God, am I going to get in trouble now? <laughs> well, that's why I'm we're acknowledging. I'm not defending it. the system. I'm 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 criticizing it, but I understand how it works. Unfortunately, it works on the basis of money perpetuates money. You know, the whole question. One of the things Karen Kasama was saying in an interview I was listening to on NPR. She was saying. You know, or no, it was, and Jodie Foster had some comments recently. I think it was her, actually. She was saying that for some reason, you know, most of the people in, in power who are making decisions about hiring women are doing so on the basis of some assessed risk, that they are perceived as more risky. Well, let's and, uh, take a look at And I think at, the same uh, thing would go with casting a, a, an Asian movie star, I well, guess. Well, what about something like The Jungle Book? This movie continues to make so much money. I mean, Scarlett Johansson voices a character for like two seconds. It's not really a, a movie that, that deals much with women characters. I mean, no human ones, that's for sure. There's only one human in the movie. But, I think uh, she plays Ka. Ka, yeah, she's a snake. It's one scene. I mean, maybe because there's already a sequel in development, Ka will circle back in some more prominent role. I mean, you can get away with slither, that now. But, slither back. I, I actually, um, I think part, uh, a lot of people wonder if, if, 
if the Jungle Book is doing incredibly well because it is more male-oriented than as the Lion King was in its day. That was very unusual for the Lion King uh, to be so male-oriented because a lot of these fairy tale movies are aimed at, at girls and from Disney. And I'm sure that that was a factor. It was widely, widely liked. I loved The Jungle Book. It's a wonderful movie. And I think Warner's is going to have a, a tough time coming up with one that's any better. And they've hired <laughs> Alfonso Cuaron as their guru to help them figure that out. I mean, I, I didn't love The Jungle Book. I thought that visually it was, it was outstanding. I thought that at certain points in time, it just felt a little half-baked narratively. And there was sort of like a weird kind of halfway allegiance to the original with two songs in there. And, and just a lot of stuff about it just felt under cooked even though production wise it was pretty amazing and I'm so I'm sort of curious about this Andy Circus thing because I would assume that would be the one with somebody like Andy Circus directing that should be just a technological wonder so I'm sort of curious to know what the disconnect is there what it is that they're trying to fix where they need a Quaron to come in and help them you know just make a better movie the mean? chances are that they're recognizing that this one is so successful that they have to come up with a new way to approach it that's different, or it won't. There won't be any point in going to see it. I, I think that would be. I'm not. I'm not sure that it's a question of there being any other problem with it necessarily. I mean, they have to figure out how to make theirs as good as it can possibly be. It's sort of an Armageddon deep impact problem. More right, than anything right. Else. Usually the, the conventional wisdom is if you have two of them and the one that comes out first is really good and it's a huge hit, that's going to be bad for the, for the second one. If the one that comes out first is terrible, that could be, give the second one a chance to be a lot better. It just, I mean, it's so funny how these kinds of things happen in the studio system. It's just such a unique kind of challenge. I mean, the only time I can think of this being an issue with movies made on a smaller scale was that when there were two Capote movies coming out. But that was such a different kind of situation. I mean, it's just, this is such a commercially driven kind of challenge. You know, if the movies would be too similar rather right. than whether or not they're going to be really good. It's, it's a very particular kind of thing that, that uh, the studio is going to have to sort out. So doubling back, uh, we've got the Tribeca Film Festival wrapping up, and I'm really happy to put that one to bed so we can start to shift our focus more on Cannes. And uh, I have to say, I've, I saw some pretty good movies this year. It's, it's not a perfect festival, and for the rest of the country, it's hard to get a sense for what it's really like. But I the more that you look at it, the more you can find things that are worth talking about. So if you look at the coverage that we've done this year, I think we've done that. What does it look like to somebody on the other side of the country? And I'm, I'm sort of curious about something like Tribeca, which even though it's a big festival, is very insular in the sense that it's mostly New York people who seem to be focusing on it. Yeah, my, my, um, from, a, from afar, I see that there are certain films uh, that are being reviewed. Uh, obviously, IndieWire Indie is reviewing a lot of them. But it strikes me that like um, other festivals, like South by Southwest, some of the most high-profile events appear to be people talking to each other. Um, Quaron and, and Lebesky or, um, uh, you know, the... The other big, uh, Chris Rock and, and J.J. Abrams, and, and they're, they're felicitous matches. I mean, I wish I could have sat in on some of those. Um, but it doesn't have a whole lot to do with, you know, movies. It's the, that's where, where the, the hot tickets uh, seem to be. 
Yeah, and, and that contrast is pretty unique in the sense that when we go to Cannes, we're not going to be talking about events. I mean, press conferences happen, but they're always directly related to the movies that, that are taking place, and the focus really is on the films, whereas what we're, with Tribeca, what's really been sort of the general takeaway is that this is a festival that is, that is driven by something else that needs to grab people's attention because the movies themselves are not always the easiest sell. So it'll be a, pretty interesting to see how it can this year. The conversations really are shaped by the movies, especially because right now there's a lot of unknown var- variables. It's really hard to tell if this is a good year or not. There's a lot that we're excited about, but... Always. On know, paper, we always are. You just then, never know. And then there's that inevitable first week where we're, we're oh my God, everything's disappointing. Okay. <laughs> and then something, you know, knocks our socks off. It happens every year. Well, I'm going to keep living in my fantasy land for the time being and just assume that they're all masterpieces. And we'll revisit. <laughs> Next week, we'll have some more intel and we can keep getting gearing up for Cannes. So until then, and rest easy. You too, Eric. Thank you.